Hello, good evening and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, we hear about the building of the Fastnet Lighthouse. I visit Cove and hear about its maritime history and how the sea played a central part in the works of Eugene O'Neill. Fastnet Lighthouse is one of the most iconic structures in Ireland or even in Europe. It's down there off the southwest coast and it's withstood all the Atlantic has thrown at it since the 1850s. James Morrissey has updated and republished his book A History of the Fastnet Lighthouse. And James came into studio today and told me something of the history of the Fastnet. The original lighthouse was a cast iron building built in the 1850s. Uh, it didn't withstand the the what the Atlantic was throwing at it, and it gradually disintegrated. So it was decided to build a new lighthouse, which was completed in 1904. And everything involved in the building of the lighthouse involved precision and perfection to an incredible degree. For example, the cut stone, each cut stone... Uh, cut perfectly in Penryn in Cornwall where it came from measured there remeasured again not one stone had a fault when it was put in place even the transporting of the stones each one was put in a metal cage kind yes, of thing trans- yes. put onto the boat they were designed with a, a dovetail almost like you would do a carpenter would do putting a, a cabinet together so yes. they fitted so, exactly so, so they fitted exactly and it wasn't just that they had to fit exactly for the perfection of the building. They had to fit exactly so that they could withstand the seas that were being thrown at them in the in, in the worst storms possible on the edge of the Atlantic. And so in other words you had to you had to take out every stone if you're going to take out one stone. And that was really, that's why the lighthouse is still standing today, because of the perfection of the, st- the stonework, the incredible engineering skills of people like Douglas, the foreman, James Kavanagh from Wicklow, who died very shortly after he completed the building, and Robert Ball, the man who's in charge of, of that magnificent light that has been a reassurance for so many sailors and seafarers for for well over a century now. The book is beautiful and you've dozens and dozens of photographs of the assembly. One man that intrigued me, you mentioned him there, the foreman, Kavanagh. Yes. He had a very specific way of getting people to work and he stayed on the rock almost the whole time. He stayed on the rock all, all, all the time. He, I think he was, he was that great combination of a manager, so to speak, in that he was he believed in a strict code of working, but he also saw his workmen as people that he had to protect and mind. Uh, and in that way, that great selflessness that brings about, I think, collegiality and loyalty. Uh, and nobody was injured. Nobody died in the, in the construction of what is probably a unique building uh, on our shores off our shores and I think that Kavanagh put he put everything 
of himself into it. And then he, 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 he took ill very quickly after completion. I think that adrenaline thing that keeps people going. Uh, he didn't think of himself and he just, he literally, he got ill and he was dead within two weeks. And they, they to be fair, the commissioners gave, gave him a wonderful funeral and had his body taken round the coast, large crowds in his native Wicklow town. Uh, he, he is one of the great heroes of, of Irish lighthouses. When they were building this lighthouse, they, unlike the earlier one that had been there, they didn't put it on the top of the rock, they put it down nearer the sea. And there was a specific engineering reason for that. The, that enabled the, the, the building to have a curvature uh, in the same way as if the wings on an aircraft, if they don't move, if there's some flexibility, you have a bigger problem. In the same way, the way in which they built the fastness rock, there's a curvature at the end so that the, the, the massive waves would hit it, they would come up by the side and they would be, by the curvature, moulded into throwing those waves back out to the sea. It's, it's, it's amazing, really. The men who built this, the labourers, the masons, they went out there for several months at a time, but there was a differentiation between people who were local and not local. They preferred not local people working there. They did again because, I, as is often the case, when a project team go into a town or a village, they're there for a purpose. They don't know each other in many cases. They don't engage with each other. They're there. They're there to work. There are very few distractions. So the kind of the culture of oh, well, I know him and we're great friends. It, they were there to do a job, and they were there to do a job over a specific period of time in in the best possible way with no casualties. It was all about self discipline. If you look at the hours they worked, the number of hours they got to sleep, everything was regimental. You were really were responsible for everything about you while you were there. And that gave, I think that, that inst- instilled a degree of I'm, I, I have a job to do and I'm here to do it. And I think they worked together on that basis that I am responsible for myself. I'm working with other people. And that, again, that discipline. The light was a particular light as well. It's been changed recently now, but you could see it from a very long way away. Yes, and and again, the to use upon the vision of of Robert Ball, apparently the first time the light was 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 lit, so to speak, uh, it it went much further than they had ever imagined, and its precision was absolutely perfect. And I suppose again, it's that emotional thing of lighthouses for seafarers but increasingly for people too who are on land that reassurance that every x number of seconds that light is going to shine and in the uncertainty of sea in in the uncertainty of weather in the uncertainty of 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 life on on the ocean that you can have something that never fails we have a fascination with lighthouses. We have posters of them in our homes. There are books. There's just another, yet another TV series, very popular TV series on RT. What? Why do you think that is? I think that they play almost a spiritual role in people's lives. And the great irony is, of course, that lighthouses are not as essential or not as relied on to the same extent in the past because we have all sorts of nautical aids now. I think people see them again as items of hope, the light, 
there's something about about these places that I think they they give off hope, they give off reliability, and in in a world of of one might say ever increasing turmoil, but constant turmoil in various places and ways that people sort of say, well, the lighthouses are always there. And again, even for landlubbers, for people who have no interest in going next or near the sea, people often say, you know, I love to see the light of a lighthouse. It gives me, it gives me a lift. It gives me, it gives me hope. And I think there is, I think there's a magic to them. It's a beautiful book. And one thing that strikes me is that the minutiae of the records kept by the commissioners of Irish Lights, you have letters, bills reproduced here. They kept, wrote it all down and kept it all. Yes. And again, everything and the, the training that lighthouse keepers got, again, was that whole thing of you have a responsibility and you must do your job properly. Now, there's there was one person that features in the book who didn't really do his job as properly as he should have. And he was uh, he was hired to paint St. John's Lighthouse. One B. Behan. One Brendan Behan. And he certainly uh, his painting skills and his his uh, adherence to discipline uh, was at very far variance to the way in which the Commission of Irish Life conducted their business. You reproduce a letter of complaint about him. It says, I have to report the painter B. Behan absent from his work all day yesterday and not returning to the station until one twenty-five this morning. Empty, stinking middle bottles, articles of food, coal, ashes and other debris litter the floor of the place, which is now in a scandalous condition of dirt. I invite any official of the Irish Lights to inspect the station and verify these statements. He is the worst specimen I have met in 30 years of service. He didn't stay there. He didn't. He was fired immediately. And again, Brendan Behan would have been, I suppose, at the other end of the scale. Discipline, timekeeping cleanliness, adherence to the rules. I mean, he was the worst suited person to, to do the job, but clearly he needed a few bob and he gave, this, he gave this a run, but that was the last lighthouse he attempted to paint that we're aware of. It's a stunning book, coffee table size, and inside the cover, uh, boat covers, you reproduce the Admiralty chart from Long Island Bay to Castlehaven, mm-hmm. which is all of that coast. Yeah. And again, the designer who's no longer with us, uh, uh, Paul McKeldron, uh, suggested that as a as an ins- as an insert in, inside the cover. And I think it really gives, in graphic detail, the terrain uh, and indeed the 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 location of the lighthouse, which was known for many many decades as uh, the last teardrop of Ireland, because it was the last piece of Irish land that emigrants who were en route to the States from Cove that they would see. And it was it was a very emotional sighting for an awful lot of those people who who probably never came home again. It's called A History of the Facet Lighthouse by James Morrissey. James, where can we get it? How much does it cost? It is a coffee table book. It's uh, €39 Euro and it's available through all bookshops and it's also available online. And it really is a stunning book. A lighthouse has a part to play in Eugene O'Neill's great work, Long Day's Journey Into Night. And Norman Freeman has been looking into how the sea plays a central role in much of the great playwright's work. I got chatting to the girl serving in the bookshop in Savannah, Georgia. When she heard I was Irish and a seafarer, 
she told me that the great American playwright, Eugene O'Neill, had been at sea himself and that many of his plays had a marine setting. All I knew about him was that he was Irish descent and had been awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. When she showed me a collection of his plays with a seafaring background, I bought it there and then. On our long voyage to Australia, I had plenty of time to read them, and I later learned about the life and work of this troubled dramatist. His father, James, was born in 1847 into a farming background in South Kilkenny. Shortly afterwards, they took the emigrant boat. A fragment of wall is all that remains of what was once the family home. James became a celebrated actor. He married an Irish woman, Mary Ellen Quinlan. Because the family was always on the move, Eugene, the second of their three sons, was born in a hotel on Broadway in 1888. He grew up with a volatile personality. After he had been kicked out of Princeton University for riotous misbehaviour, O'Neill knocked about the waterfronts of the eastern seaboard of the US. In 1910, he shipped out on cargo ships as an ordinary sailor. He endured all the hardships of seafaring in those years. He absorbed the atmosphere of seaboard life, seeing the effects of a hard existence on fellow humans. Like many seafarers, he got into the habit of heavy drinking. O'Neill became fascinated by the rough-hewn mariners, the longshoremen and the drifters, women and men, who went about the wharves. He listened to their talk and their tales. His first play, Bound East for Cardiff, was about the unfulfilled longing of a sailor who wanted to quit the sea and live inland, close to the earth. It was produced in a makeshift theatre on a wharf in Princetown, Massachusetts. He wrote enthralling plays about real people and real life. For the first time in the American theatre, the ordinary speech of human beings struggling to maintain their lives in dignity was heard on the stage. His characters tried to express their longings, their disappointments, their joy and their stress in words that were awkward but that rang true. Reading his sea plays, I could see how well he understood the troubles that can haunt deep-sea sailors. They can have a feeling that life on land is full of promise, human warmth and fulfilment, while they are away at sea, maybe feeling lonely on some distant ocean. He wrote many other plays with settings away from the sea. Yet the sea looms in the background of his most famous play, Long Day's Journey Into Night. Based on his very disturbed family, the play depicts awkward attempts at affection that are spoiled by resentment. Tenderness is served by accusation, encouragement diminished by blame. The characters all embody a yearning for life to be otherwise. During the play, set in a house in a port, the fog descends outside and the foghorn from the lighthouse sounds dismally. The sea, in all its moods, seemed never away from many of the plays of that great dramatist. He died in 1953 in the Sheraton Hotel in Boston. His last words were, I knew it, I knew it, born in a hotel room and died in a hotel room. Norman Freeman Cove in Cork Harbour has a rich maritime history. Of course, it was the last landfall for the Titanic and for Irish immigrants bound for the United States. I visited there recently and walked around with local auctioneer and president of Cove and Harbour Chamber, Joanna Murphy. 
There's a lot of military and maritime um, history associated with Cove. It's great because it's still kept alive through the maritime um, industry with the port. You have the ships, you have the sailing. So there's a lot of commercial and leisure activity. And I suppose if you go back to even all the properties and the buildings in Cove here, they would have been built in the early 1800s. And they were always built either for a military or maritime. They could be for commanders, lieutenants. They could have been for admirals. So they all have a story to tell, which is so nice. And they've all been preserved, which is great. They have been preserved. And let's start looking at this building here. This is obviously on the seafront. It was obviously... A maritime connection at some stage. Absolutely. So that building was built in 1720. It was home to the first yacht club, which was the Royal Munster Yacht Club. And um, today it's been used as an art gallery. And it again has been preserved and been worked on. And it's a magnificent building overlooking Cork Harbour. So when the yacht club first started there in 1720, they then moved over to uh, Crosshaven, which is now called the Royal Cork Yacht Club. Yeah. And when we look across them, we're looking over at Hall Boland, the naval base. Uh, Ring of Skiddy is just up, up the way from us here. And all of, what, what's, what, what's down here? Okay, so you, as you rightly said, you have the naval base, you have Hall Boland Park, which used to be the former home of Irish Steel. Then you have Spike Island, which again used to be a prison and was closed down in 2004 and is now the number one destination, tourist destination. You have people from all, the, all, all over the world coming there. Then across there you have Whitegate um, Oil Refinery and Whitegate itself. You have Ahada, Rastellan. And then if you go around, the corner you go to where East Ferry is over in the Middleton side and then you have East Ferry on the Cove side. One thing that strikes me looking out here now we've been talking about lighthouses quite a lot you've got one on legs in the middle right in the middle of the harbour. Yes so you have the Spitbank um, lighthouse which was built in uh, the mid 1800s I think it was 1858 and it's an octagonal shape and what's quite fascinating with it is that it's screwed into the mud bank underneath and it's still there it hasn't moved and it's still, I mean, it's fantastic. And you also have the other lighthouse there, which is Roaches Point, which was as, at the mouth of the harbour to guide the ships coming in. The space, it's a, a turning mark for when you're leaving the harbour as yeah, a ship. You, yeah, go, you have to go yeah, around yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Otherwise, exactly. you're aground. Yes, because there's a huge mud bank there, obviously. So, yeah, so it's great. And it's great to see, I mean, I suppose they're all dotted all over the country, but to have them, two of them here in Cork Harbour is fantastic. We have Deepwater Quay just yeah. down the way here. It is. So the Deepwater Quay is one of its kind purely designated for the liners which is amazing so this year alone we have 90 liners coming in which is they bring an enormous amount of revenue to Cove and the region and they're purely 90 cruise ships 90 cruise ships alone this year which is amazing and they only started a couple of weeks ago so you could have each cruise ship could have up to three four thousand passengers on board so when they come when the liners come into Cove and just remember when you have a liner coming into a port they don't necessarily go into a very attractive port. But when they come into Cove, Cove is extremely attractive. And so you have the ships coming in, you have the passengers coming in, but then you also have the spectators who come down to see these amazing vessels. Then you have the crew. So if you come into Cove any day that there's a liner in, it's like as if there's a festival going on. And okay. it's midweek, could be Monday, Tuesday, it doesn't matter. So it's a well-used promenade. We're going to take a walk down. What, what do cruise passengers do when they arrive in here? Okay, so there's a lot of um, tourism attractions here. So we have Spike Island, obviously, as I just mentioned. We have the Heritage Centre, which is the which is the former train station. So part of it's still the train station, but then you have the Heritage Centre, which tells the story of Cove. And then okay, you, and they can get a train into absolutely. Cork. Absolutely. So the train leaves. Every, the train is on the half hour every hour, and then on the busy times is every half hour. And then you have the, you see the old building there that used to be the former post office. Okay, it, is that the one that, the it white was star. the Titanic yeah, Centre? Yeah, exactly. So that was the White Star, uh, where the, formerly when the, when the Titanic um, last 
disembarked from here where they anchored just at the mouth of the harbour and the passengers were, were brought out to the ship disembarked from that building. That was the White Star Line yes. office. Yeah, so that's the um, Heartbreak Pier, which we're going to go and have a look at at the moment. It's still there. So that building now currently is broken into two sections. So you have the Titanic Experience, which is almost like a, a Titanic museum for all the world, right? And you go through what it was like. And then you have the Titanic Bar and Grill, which is underneath. And we're right on the water there, as you can see. And it's great. Again, the building's been kept alive. Another, another use. People come off the ships. No, 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 uh, They're drawn to that. They're drawn to the heritage. Remember, the cathedral was built in 1911. You then, if you walk down towards the end of the town, we have a Titanic Gardens, which is only mm. in situ in the last couple of years. And again, it's a lovely recreational area as well. Yeah, the Heritage Centre, it does have quite a bit of a commemoration or uh, artefacts for people, the, the emigration years, if I can put it that way. It was a sad story. And even if when you, when you go in there and... Even, I, I live in Cove, I've been in there so many times, but still when I go in there, each time, it brings the reality back to me how hard life was for them back then. We've come now here to the centre of... This is called Casement Square, and you have the monument here commemorating the Lusitania and the survivors, and it's very much significant for Cove, and again, we commemorated that only a couple of weeks ago. So it's a lovely, it's a, you know, it's a piece of history, and as you can see here in the plaque, it kind of tells you all about it, about the tragedy, the remembrance. An awful lot of the survivors of the Lusitania were brought through the town here, and when you read some of the accounts they give of their journey afterwards, they remark on the kindness they were shown here. Oh, absolutely, and Cove is a very welcoming town, and everybody says that, even the tourists today say that, which is, which is a great, I think that's always been our trait, that we've always welcomed people here, we've always helped people, and that's a really nice tribute. Okay, we'll go on. Yeah. Um, we have a little harbour here, what's yeah. this one called? So this is called Kennedy Pier. So basically this is um, where the ships, well I mean you would have Heartbreak Pier from the Titanic building, right? Um, the White Star building back then. Why is it called Heartbreak Pier? I suppose Heartbreak Pier, look what happened. Yeah. And then Kennedy B Pier here is where you have the landing platform for the Spike Island ferry that brings people to Spike, which is great. Okay. Um, it's very much a working pier, I can see yeah, Spike can Island see, tours, a, yeah, all the little yeah, boats in there. You all the fishing boats come in here, and, but it's very tidal as you can see. But um, again, it's right in the centre of town. Yeah, you know. So the, this town was built as a, it's a maritime centre. This is the maritime centre in Ireland through its history. Absolutely, and so we have the maritime history that's very much kept alive with all the tourist attractions that we have to make to ensure people, you know, the people remember it. But then, if you if you bring it now to 2022, what do we have in our harbour? We have a maritime college in Ring of Skiddy. You have all the ships. You have the Port of Cork. You have the liners. You have Doyle Shipping. The, the old Rome Dockyard. Just on the way in, yeah. Huge history associated with the, with the Rome Dockyard. The, the name itself, Cove, it's changed through history. Yeah, so first of all, it was called C-O-V-E, which was basically the Cove of Cork Harbour. Then it was changed to uh, Queenstown when Queen Victoria arrived here in 1849. And then the War of Independence, it was changed in 1922 to C-O-B-H. We've got the cathedral here just towering right over us. Yeah, so the cathedral was built in 1911, a massive tourist destination for people. So they come to Cove and that's the one thing, it's like the church, is, the cathedral is looking down on all of us, right? It's just so significant. It's always windy up there, mind you, but it's gorgeous. And the architecture in there is amazing and it's very much utilised, which is great. Okay, we come along here now, beautiful red brick building. But isn't we, it? we can read about yeah. it right here. Oh, yeah. Coonlard liners have been visiting this port from 1867 to the present day. 
Yeah, so okay. basically it's the same age as most of the buildings here in Cove. It was at this pier in 1915 that many victims and survivors of the Lusitania were brought ashore. Now, how come all the buildings here have survived? They always say old buildings do survive. The average age of a building here in Cove is anything from 1810 to 1850. Like even looking up the hill here, there are no eyesore uh, modern apartment or office blocks. No, they won't allow it because Cove is a heritage town. And I think if you put a modern monstrosity here in the middle of the town, it just wouldn't work. Okay, so we've kind of come to the end of the main part of, of town. If I come here for a day trip, I'm passing by... What should I do? I'm interested in maritime things. Okay, so, well, first of all, you're going to get the train down to Cove, right? It's going to take you 25 minutes, and it's quite a scenic trip down to Cove, I have to say. And then you're going to have your choice. But you'll have to book if you want to go to Spike Island, because obviously it's a boat trip over, and you would have to allow yourself a good two hours over on Spike Island, because there's a restaurant there, there's the tour of the prison, you can walk around the island. Then you have the Heritage Centre, which tells the story of Cove and how, you know, how bad times were for people back then. Then you have the Titanic Experience, which again takes, tells the story of the Titanic. Plenty of restaurants for you to go down and have a bite to eat. We have the Cathedral, you have the Cove Museum. Titanic Trail, actually, Michael Martin, Dr. Michael Martin, he does a fantastic tour, a walking tour of Cove which is really, really important. So all those areas, like the cathedral now and the museum and all the, the streets and the Titanic, he'll tell you all that. And it's great. So I think you need to Google what's going on in Cove, the tourist attractions, book everything, and spend the day. But you'd even need more than a day. And why not book into the Commodore Hotel or the Water's Edge or somewhere and avail of it? You sold me. <laughs> and thanks to Joanna Murphy for that potted history of Cove. And if you're on that part of the world over the next few days, check out the Cork Harbour Festival. There are multiple events running over the weekend. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme is podcast. It's on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keane.